Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. In 1913, Atlanta, Georgia was still struggling to recover from the Civil War some 50 years prior. You might remember from history class that the city had been seized and burned in 1864. After the war, the South had to spend more money on Reconstruction than the North did, and that meant it was good business for middle-class Northerners to move their businesses down South. They weren't exactly welcome, That's where the phrase carpetbagger comes from. But they were pretty successful. There were huge divides in the South between Yankees and Confederates, sure, but also between white people and black people and between the haves and have-nots. Little Mary Fagan's family was among the have-nots. Just consider that for a moment. She was a 13-year-old child laborer who did a repetitive task. She inserted rubber erasers into eraser tips at the National Pencil Company on Forsyth Street in downtown Atlanta. This is from a 2015 interview with Steve Oney, who wrote a book about the case. He noted that this was an era before federal child labor laws. Day after day, hour after hour, she earned pennies an hour. She had no hope of going to high school. Forget about college. One day, she went to fetch her paycheck. The next day, her face was splashed on newspapers under the headline, Girl Slain in Strangling Mystery. Mary was born in Alabama as the youngest of four children. The oldest was Benjamin, born in 1893. Then came Allie in 1894, followed by Charlie in 1896. Mary was born in 1899. The same year, her 25-year-old father died from what I can piece together from Find a Grave and Ancestry.com. Mary's mother remarried soon after and moved the family to Atlanta. April 26, 1913, promised to be an exciting day in Atlanta. A parade was planned to celebrate Confederate Memorial Day, which is different than the National Memorial Day most of us know. This one began after the Civil War in southern states to honor the Confederate war dead. Apparently, it's still celebrated to this day in Alabama, Georgia, Florida, plus some other southern states. The Atlanta Constitution ran a brief that described the kind of fanfare expected. Quote, The members of Alan Turner Chapter UDC are planning an interesting and appropriate program to be carried out on Confederate Memorial Day. There will be included in the program one or two addresses for the occasion. The local chapter has been organized only a short time, and there is much enthusiasm being manifested in its work here, as well as in the program for the 26th, end quote. Mary ate her usual breakfast of cabbage and bread, 
and hopped on the streetcar to go to work so she could collect her pay. Her boss was a man named Leo Frank, who was in his office when she arrived. He gave her the $1.20 she was owed, and according to him, that's the last time he saw her. What happened next is, as with many murder cases, in dispute. What's known is what's printed in newspapers on April 28th. Mary Fagan's body was found by a night watchman around 3.30 in the morning in the pencil company's cellar. Mary, wrongly reported at first to be 15 years old, was filthy with a gaping wound in the back of her head, bruises and cuts all over her body, and some cloth knotted around her throat. Tied to the cloth was a short piece of rope, which police believed had been used to lower a body into the basement through a small hole in the floor above. Physicians were called to the scene, who declared it death by strangulation. There were two odd notes left at the scene that seemed to be scrawled on scrap paper. One of the notes read, Ma'am, that Negro hire down here did this. I went to make water, and he pushed me down that hole. A long, tall Negro black, that who it was. Long, slim, tall Negro. I write while play with me. That was Oni, the author, reading again. At first, it seemed feasible that the death note was written by Mary because the floor around her was littered with pencils that also seemed to have fallen from that small hole above. But Mary's stepfather said the handwriting didn't match. Mary wasn't a highly educated girl at 13, but she had attended some schooling, and this writing was too simplistic to be hers. Police immediately went about collecting clues. They realized the cloth around her neck was actually torn from her underclothing. They found a lead pipe near her body, which they thought might have been used to beat her. Police canvassed the area for witnesses and interviewed a night watchman who had been working in a nearby building. He said he'd heard a woman scream shortly after midnight, but because the day had been so raucous with the parade and partiers, he didn't investigate it. The worker who found Mary was a guy named Newt Lee. He, of course, was immediately suspected. He was a black man, or as the newspapers of the time preferred, Negro, which they seriously said on first reference as though his race remotely mattered in reporting that he found a dead girl. It would turn out that race would play a huge role in this case, though that's sort of a chicken-or-the-egg thing. Now, Newtley wasn't a dummy. He saw that note blaming the long, tall Negro and immediately realized he'd be under suspicion. He insisted he had nothing to do with Mary's death, though. He had just been doing his nightly rounds when he happened to see her in the dimly lit basement. Police arrested him under the blanket charge of suspicion, not a crime you hear invoked anymore. But they did seem to keep an open mind. Some witnesses told them that they spotted Mary around 12.30 in the morning, so three hours before her body was found, with a man named Arthur Mullinax. Though newspaper reports didn't see fit to specify his race, as they did with some others, 
I'll mention that he was white. He, too, was arrested on a charge of suspicion. The story of Mary's death was huge. Going through the archives, I see it reported in newspapers in Alabama, Tennessee, Louisiana, North Carolina, Kansas, Ohio, Indiana, New York. This was national news. The story of Mary Fagan. At age 10, she left school to work. At age 13, at her workplace, she was found dead. This is a young woman who had a very hard life, and and to be murdered in such a brutal way um, really captivated uh, the nation. There wasn't TV news coverage back then, but I'll use some more modern reporting throughout this episode to help tell the story. Even before any newspaper had produced an image of her with big, innocent eyes and a girlish bow in her hair, people were drawn to her tale. She was just so young, so undeserving of this kind of shocking violence. I mean, her big claim to fame so far in life was that she had earned raves playing Sleeping Beauty in a church performance the year before. She became something of a symbol, and the newspapers couldn't get enough. Here's Oni again. It didn't help that Atlanta was in the midst of a horrific newspaper war. There were three independent newspapers in Atlanta at the time, the Journal, the Constitution, and the Atlanta Georgian, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst. And the Hearst paper just went wild with the story. When police approached Leo Frank, Mary's boss is the superintendent of the pencil factory, he seemed really nervous. He was a small man, age 29, who happened to be Jewish. He lived with his wife, Lucille. Leo Frank was a quiet, rational, extremely well-educated mechanical engineer, graduated from Cornell University. He was one of those overachievers with lots of extracurricular interests, chess, photography, poker, tennis. Police didn't immediately read his nerves as guilt, but they noted it. They filed it away. Frank told them he had seen Mary only for that brief moment when she had requested her pay. He had no idea what happened after that, he said. He was a really dry guy, pretty analytical, and the nerves matched with the detachment. Well, police noted that too. Arthur Mullinax, one of the first suspects, was the streetcar driver who regularly drove Mary to work. He was 28 and supposedly a bit of a flirt. Mary was described as a bit mature for her age, but she was still 13, almost 14. Newt Lee, the man who had found her body, had no alibi because he in fact was at the factory doing his job. That means he was at the scene of the crime, but the notes found near Mary's body seemed at odds with Newt being guilty. I mean, it's one thing to report finding a body when you're the killer. It's another to leave notes, actually implicating yourself as the killer. And who would do that? Police also looked at a friend of Mary's who had previously worked at the pencil factory with her. Around 6 p.m., Leo Frank had stepped out of the factory and run into James Milton Gant, called Jam, by people who knew him. (laughs) 
Gant had first met Mary about 10 years prior when she was four years old. Her mother was still known as Mrs. Fagan rather than Mrs. Coleman. After Mary's dad died and her mother remarried, they moved away from the Marietta area where Gant had lived and into the city where Gant and Mary would reconnect as co-workers. Frank had reportedly fired Gant in early April because the payroll was short a buck or two, and Gant worked as the paymaster. Considering Mary's entire pay for that week was $1.20, a couple of bucks was a significant amount of money for the company. It's tough to know if this description is true or if it was embellished with hindsight, but Newt Lee and Gant both told police that Frank seemed to jump back when he saw Gant, like he was nervous to see him. Gant, who was in his early 20s, asked to go into the building because he had left some shoes there and he wanted to get them back. Because of Gant's unexpected appearance at the plant that specific day, added with his known friendship with Mary, he was added to the suspect list and held not on a charge of suspicion this time, but on a charge of murder. Still, Leo Frank as a suspect was gaining traction. Now, Leo being Jewish matters because, if you know your history, sentiment toward Jewish people wasn't great at the time. I mean, it's still not, as ridiculous as that is, but the world stage in 1913 was definitely not friendly. The late 1800s had brought an influx of Jewish immigrants, some of whom indeed found the American dream for which they were searching. And some people being the disappointing Cretans we know possible, there were folks who decided it was unfair for anyone to move to a new country and, you know, do well. Jealousy is a hell of a thing. This was a worldwide problem. You don't need to point to specific events in the early 1900s to know anti-Semitism was rising. All you need to know is that some high-profile people who went down in history as majorly anti-Semitic grew up in this time period. Henry Ford, who would write a series of articles about a vast Jewish conspiracy infecting America. Madison Grant, the eugenicist author of The Passing of the Great Race. And then there was Hitler. The crush of immigrants from Eastern Europe prompted this wave of nationalism and nativism. And you may have noticed from events in more recent history, those sentiments seem to be accompanied by an us-versus-them mentality. The them in that period were Jewish people. That was the backdrop that made Leo Frank's Judaism relevant. So early on, newspapers had floated four people of interest awfully quickly. Mullinax, Lee, Gant, and Frank. There's also mentioned in at least one newspaper report about two other black employees being held at the factory, though their names were never published. It seems worth noting that things today are quite a bit different than they were back then. Imagine learning of a crime and then hearing that six disparate people were being held in jail as police investigated. And that's not how it would happen today. Yes, you can hold somebody for 48 hours without charging them. 
but holding six different people who weren't suspected of working together, the defense would have a field day pointing to alternate suspects. We journalists try to be careful about publishing early suspects' names, too. There's no rule against it, per se. But we're mindful that public opinion is a powerful thing, and publishing someone's name attached to a murder inevitably puts a cloud of suspicion over that person, even if they're ultimately cleared. That's not to say all journalism was irresponsible at the time. In fact, on May 2, 1913, not two weeks after Mary's death, the Atlanta Constitution ran a story that, in hindsight, is heartbreakingly noteworthy. It was titled, Keep an Open Mind, and it began, quote, Notwithstanding all that has happened since the finding of the murdered body of Mary Fagan, nothing has yet developed that in any way fixes the crime on any individual. Several arrests have been made, and in the excitement incident to the affair, suspicion has been directed from one person to another as the kaleidoscope has turned on the investigation, all of which goes to show that the public is often constrained to reach hasty and frequently unwarranted conclusions. It is certain that all of the parties against whom suspicion has in one way or another been directed cannot be guilty End quote. The piece goes on to say that the verdict, whatever that may ultimately be, must come in an orderly and legal way. Quote, Nothing can be more unjust nor more repugnant to the popular sense of justice than to convict, even by hearsay, an innocent man. End quote. But that was just one of at least three major newspapers covering the case. And not all were promoting a wait-and-see approach. The Atlanta Georgian was the type of sensationalistic rag that ran a morgue photo of Fagan, in which they spliced the dead girl's head onto the body of another girl. According to a 2004 book written by Steve Oney, a few days after the murder, they ran a headline that read, Police Had the Strangler. Not only that, but the Georgian, a newspaper that helped incite a race riot seven years before Mary was killed, paid to provide a lawyer to one of the suspects in the case. You might not love all current newspaper coverage, but at least doing that would cause a scandal nowadays, and it would probably help lead to a mistrial. As police waded through the suspects, they began to whittle down the list. Let's look at Arthur first. He was said to flirt with Mary, and he definitely had a type. He was nearly 30, but seemed to gravitate toward teenage girls. In fact, it was eventually just such a girl who provided him an alibi. A 16-year-old girl named Pearl Robeson said Arthur couldn't have killed Mary because the two of them went to supper in the theater, and when they parted, he went straight home. Gant was eliminated as well because of a solid alibi, though the details of that one weren't published. Once the list was whittled to three black men and one Jewish man, concerns began to grow about mob justice. Militia may be needed, ran a wire headline. Mob may attempt to avenge murder of Atlanta girl. That story ran May 2, 1913. 
What wasn't reported that day was something that had happened the day before. Yet another man had been arrested in connection with Mary's death. That man, Jim Conley, was a factory worker who had been spotted trying to wash some stains out of a shirt. Those stains were later identified as blood stains. That was the most incriminating evidence found to date. Mullinax had maybe been spotted with Mary, and Gant had simply been at the building. Frank had paid Mary her salary. Lee had found her body. Those were all noteworthy facts, but they're not incriminating. Bloodstains? Well, that was another matter. Conley had a few conflicting explanations at first, but he eventually offered one the detectives liked. Yes, he said, that blood was Mary Fagan's. He had helped hide her body, he said, but he hadn't killed her. That had been done by the man who forced him to help. Leo Frank. Conley explained that he wrote those grammatically nightmarish letters found by Mary's body, and that he did so on Frank's order. He told the police that Leo Frank dictated those notes to him to pin the crime on yet another black man. That Leo Frank was in the habit of seducing young women at the pencil factory, and that Conley had served as Leo Frank's guard during his assignations, and that one of the assignations, the one with Mary Fagan, got out of hand, and Leo Frank was violent, and Mary Fagan ended up dead. Conley's statements changed everything. The detectives on the case went from casting a broad net with seemingly endless possibilities to zeroing in on Frank, despite evidence that undercut that theory. That Leo Frank was Jewish was one strike against him. That he was well-educated and well-off, that was another. The third strike was all about geography. This is Mark Markowitz, director of the Anti-Defamation League, followed by Richard Bands, director of the Southern Museum. Both were talking to USA Today in 2015. He was the ultimate New York Jew living in the South. And that brought out for a lot of anti-Semitism that laid beneath the surface in the South. You have this Southern white 13-year-old girl who is murdered at the hands of what becomes this this stereotypical evil northern foreigner. In trial, just two months after Connolly's arrest, prosecutors presented a problematic case in a packed courtroom left with standing room only. Connolly was their star witness. He had worked as a sweeper at the factory and provided details so graphic that the judge reportedly cleared the courtroom of women and children for him to testify. According to Conley, Frank was this sexual deviant who preyed on girls. In essence, Conley said Frank had chosen him to be his wingman and lookout and routinely invited young women up into his office where he entertained them. The morning of April 26th, Frank set his sights on Mary for a quote-unquote chat. Conley agreed to keep watch and then a little while later heard Frank whistle for him to come into his office. Conley said Frank was unhinged when he walked in, 
visibly nervous. He was so shaken, in fact, that he physically leaned on Conley to stand upright. He explained that little Mary Fagan hadn't been interested in chatting and that Frank had struck her and left her in the machine room. He sent Conley in to get her, and Conley said that when he approached, he saw the dead girl on the floor with her arms outstretched. Frank told him to wrap up the body and hide it in the basement. But when Conley found it difficult to carry Mary's 125-pound frame, Frank helped get it onto an elevator. He bribed Conley to keep his mouth shut and supposedly muttered, Why should I hang? Frank then instructed Conley to write the notes, implicating Newt Lee as the killer. Jim Conley's testimony against Leo Frank would be quite damning if there were solid corroboration for it, but there wasn't. More than 20 character witnesses testified on Frank's behalf, and those who testified against him usually had little worse to say than Frank made the girls uncomfortable with his nervous mannerisms. Several people, both young workers and contemporaries, said Frank had a stuttering, clinical sort of personality. But that was normal for him. He wasn't excessively nervous the day Mary died, most of them said. He was just being himself. Prosecutors accused those of testifying as such of lying or being bribed by Frank. This is a good example of why we need lawyers. This is former Georgia Governor Roy Barnes, who's become convinced over the years that Frank was innocent. Uh, Lawyers stand up or should stand up against passion and prejudice. Uh, And there were some good lawyers in this case, but unfortunately they did not control the mob. Those who testified that Frank seemed guilty almost universally had something to gain from his conviction. Most notably, Newt Lee, who at this point was second in the line of suspects. Lee's most damning testimony was that Frank had called him that day and asked how the plant was doing when he normally wouldn't have. It was hardly a smoking gun. Defense lawyers tried to shake Conley's testimony, but aside from acknowledging that he had told inconsistent statements, he held to his story. And for whatever reason, that story is the one the lead detective on the case believed. So even though the holes in it would allow enough sunshine through to kill a vampire, it's one of those backed by police and given the benefit of the doubt by those who trusted the law. Frank testified on his own behalf, and it likely hurt his case beyond repair. He was such a smart man, so matter-of-fact. He spent a big chunk of time talking about the work that he'd been doing that Saturday. Complicated, boring work involving finances and orders and stuff the jury just didn't understand or care for. He described Mary coming into his office and asking for pay, but he said he didn't really know the girl. She had to tell him her employee number, after which he took her pay from the cash box, slid it into an envelope, on the outside of which he wrote her employee number. Mary apparently paused before she left and asked if the medal for her department had arrived yet. Frank said no. And she left. 
pressed on why he seemed so nervous when police told him of the death early the next morning, Frank said the explanation was simple. He'd been yanked from bed and shown Mary's body at the morgue, he testified. Quote, Gentlemen, I was nervous. I was completely unstrung. Imagine yourself called from sound slumber in the early hours of the morning, whisked through the chill morning air without breakfast to go into that undertaking establishment, have the light suddenly flashed on a scene like that, to see that little girl on the dawn of womanhood so cruelly murdered. It was a scene that would have melted stone. Is it any wonder I was nervous? End quote. The investigators had embraced Frank as a killer, in part because he hadn't been terribly cooperative after he was accused of murder early on. He said they had tried to get Newt Lee to confess, which he said they did by putting words into the man's mouth that Frank knew weren't true. When Lee didn't implicate himself, they tried to convince him to implicate Frank, the superintendent testified. Later, after Jim Conley implicated Frank, police tried to get him and Frank to meet up to see if the two of them discussing what had happened that night might clear up some inconsistencies in Conley's story. Frank said no way. Not only did that sound like a bad idea, period, but the cops tried to arrange it when his lawyer wasn't around. The cops interpreted that refusal as a sign of guilt. Why would an innocent man not want to clear the record? Frank said he only refused because he didn't want things to get twisted. He testified, quote, I knew there was not a word that I could have uttered that they would not deform and distort and use against me, end quote. The Fulton County Courthouse was on Marietta Street at the time. Governor Barnes again. There's no air conditioning, so the windows would be open and there was a mob down below and they somebody would sit in the window and tell what the testimony was and the mob would either groan or cheer. It's reported that when the jurors would walk up the street to go to the uh, trial, the trial lasted a month, that the mob would scream, hang the Jew or we'll hang you. The mob had power. The evidence presented was objectively weak but it was enough for the jury. Leo Frank was convicted of killing Mary Fagan and sentenced to death on August 26, 1913. He was to be hanged. Back in the last century, just as today, the American judicial system featured a robust and complicated appeal system, which Frank put to use. The case was appealed five times. Frank was convicted jury was out for a day. Evidence that had been the f- a five-week trial, the then longest in Georgia history. The man speaking just then was Tom Watson Brown in an oral history. In April 1914, Frank's lawyers appealed the hanging that was scheduled for later that month. The county court denied the request. Frank's lawyers appealed the ruling to the Georgia Supreme Court. The state's high court affirmed the trial. Frank's lawyers then appealed to the Federal District Court of North Georgia, denied again. 
Finally, Frank's lawyers appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and got another denial. At this point, Frank's execution was set for June 1915. Three weeks before it was scheduled, Frank's lawyers filed an appeal for clemency with the Georgia Prison Commission, hoping to have his death sentence commuted. That appeal was, surprise, denied. But finally, at long last, someone sided with Frank. On June 20th, 1915, just two days before the scheduled hanging, Georgia Governor John Slayton announced he had poured over the files, devoured the transcripts, and reviewed all of the evidence. And he was convinced Frank was innocent. In his last day in office, Slayton commuted the sentence from death to life in prison. Governor Barnes again. There's a great quote from Jack Slayton, Governor Slayton's wife, Sally, as they called her. He came home and said, uh, I'm going to commute uh, Leo Frank, but I don't know what effect it'll have on us. And she said, I would rather be the widow of a brave man than the wife of a coward. Slayton had the encouragement of some unlikely players, like Ellis Rowan, the judge who had presided over the case, who said he had serious doubts about Frank's guilt, and Jim Conley's attorney, William Smith, who had actually come to believe Conley was the killer. But even though Slayton believed Frank was innocent, he didn't upend the system altogether. He simply took death off the table— He wanted to see the man live and have a chance to clear his name. As such, he ordered Frank to be moved from a prison in Fulton County to another in Milledgeville in hopes of avoiding a lynch mob attack. On July 18, 1915, a prisoner named J. William Cream slashed Frank's throat in an attempt to kill him. Lucky for Frank... Two prisoners nearby happened to be doctors who stopped the bleeding and saved his life. But Frank's luck was running out. On August 16, 1915, a caravan of some 25 armed men arrived in Milledgeville and surrounded the prison. They cut the telephone lines, surprised some guards, drained police vehicles of gas, and kidnapped Frank. They drove for hours back toward Marietta, where Mary had spent her childhood, and they asked if Frank had any last requests. Yes, he had one. That his wedding band be returned to his wife, Lucille, who had stood by him and never doubted his innocence. The mob then wrapped a rope around Frank's neck and hanged him from a tree. When word spread about the hanging, crowds arrived to gawk at the corpse. Photographs were taken of this slight man, his head dangling back in an unnatural way, his hands still cuffed in front of him. The people who killed him posed with his body. One of the pictures was turned into a souvenir postcard. Former Governor Barnes said, There's a picture of... uh Leo Frank hanging from the tree off Fry's Gin Road in Marietta, and Judge Newt Morris, who was the Superior Court judge, was standing there by the tree. 
the sheriff, the former sheriff, the current sheriff. They had all of these outstanding members of the community that were involved in this in one way or another. And the greatest question I've always had was these people who are considered to be the pillars of the community, what happened to them that they went so crazy? This is the only Jewish lynching that they have found in American history. Now, unfortunately, and a blot on our history, the lynching of African Americans was fairly common. It's been estimated there were over 4,000 lynchings of African Americans, but this is the only Jew. Every murder has ripple effects that extend far beyond the original victim and their family. This one sparked enormous change on a lot of fronts. Soon after Frank's lynching, the two-year-old Anti-Defamation League catapults into a national force against hate. And on Stone Mountain, the Ku Klux Klan rallies and reforms, an homage to the Knights of Mary Fagan. Both the ADL and KKK exist today. Many white supremacists still have that actually etched as a tattoo. The white supremacist movement sees Leo Frank as a, as a win for them. The Anti-Defamation League was founded in September 1913, in part because of the anti-Semitism highlighted by Frank's arrest and trial. The group that hanged Frank, which at the time called themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan, regrouped in November 1915 after the hanging and declared themselves the Ku Klux Klan reborn. And then there was this. An April 30, 1913 story in the Atlanta Constitution read, If children of such tender years were not forced to work, Mary Fagan might be living, said Dr. A.J. McElway of the Southern Sociological Congress. The quotes came from a speech McElway had given at the Wesley Memorial Church the night before. He had said, quote, Think of the heavy toll which she undergoes and the physical conditions under which she labors. Why is it that such is allowed in our fair land? The Sociological Congress must do its share of enlightenment. It has shown these evils to the world. End quote. In 1916, Congress passed some of the first child labor laws. Seventy years after Mary was killed, in 1982, a witness stepped forward with new information. Alonzo Mann had been Frank's office boy in 1913. He had testified in Frank's trial, but only about his boss's general demeanor, which he said was affable. Decades later, he told reporters of the Tennessean that actually he should have been called as a witness to the crime. Inflammatory murder from Georgia's past comes back to life. The tragedy of Leo Frank and Mary Fagan is revived when the Fulton County District Attorney began to form what he calls a conviction integrity unit. Alonzo Mann said he had seen Jim Conley alone shortly after noon carrying Mary's body through the factory lobby toward a ladder that led to the basement. He took a lie detector test and passed for what that's worth. This is the theory most historians believe, that Jim Conley was the killer and that he had pinned it on Leo Frank. If you're curious why Conley got the benefit of the doubt when Frank didn't, 
It boils down to hard feelings after the Civil War. Conley might have been black and back then denied all kinds of rights thanks to Jim Crow laws, but he was still a Southerner. Frank was a hoity-toity Northerner. Nowadays, he'd be labeled a snobby elite, and even worse, because people were still reeling from the war. And thanks both to anti-Semitism and a powerful post-war hatred of Northerners, people believed Conley. Alonzo Mann said he never stepped forward because Conley had threatened him and because he had told his parents about what he had seen and they insisted he forget it and not get involved. So he didn't. Leo Frank is a relic of the past that still looms over the future. The Leo Frank lynching uh, certainly shaped our city. It shaped our region and it frankly reshaped the nation. Jim Conley served just one year in jail for being an accomplice after the fact in the slaying. Though there's no official record of his death, it's believed he lived at least another 40 years. It should be a reminder that you can't let passion and prejudice overcome common sense and human decency. And if there's ever a time that that lesson needs to be taught in our nation, I think it is now. The state of Georgia never granted Frank a full pardon in Mary's death. But in 1986, officials at least recognized that the state had failed to protect him and, thus, stole his chance to continue fighting to clear his name. The uh, pardon and parole board did that on procedural basis, that he was not afforded a fair trial. And I think that the evidence is more than sufficient to show that he did not commit the crime. And not only that, that it was based on what I consider to be the flimsiest of evidence. No one was ever charged in Leo Frank's lynching. She left her home at seven. She kissed her mother goodbye. Not one time did the poor child think that she was going to die. Then a villain met her with a brutal heart we know. He smiled and said to Mary, you go home no more. Thanks for listening. Most of my sources were newspaper articles from the time of the trial, except where noted. Audio came from interviews with Steve Oney and from programs aired on Georgia Public Broadcasting. I also used trial transcripts compiled via the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and GeorgiaInfo.com, as well as the online almanac affiliated with the University of Georgia. I didn't use stuff that came from one source alone, and I would like to note that, oh my God, are there some crazy conspiracy theories online about this case, some of which is cleverly disguised. So as a general rule, I avoided sources that included phrases such as organized Jews and Jewish occupation. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was researched by me, Amber Hunt, with production assistance from Phil Didion. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. 
On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs>